Welcome to the Biz News Power Hour. I'm Michael Apple. It's Thursday, the 17th of February. Well, it's a great show we've put together for you this evening. It's diverse, it's interesting, and it's got something for everyone, I suspect. We kick off with uh, editor Alec Hogg speaking to a man who guarded President Nelson Mandela for five years. He was our country's first citizen. Don't miss this interview with Rory Stain. It's complete with stories about one of the most loved and missed icons around the world. Rory is also going to be giving a fireside chat at our upcoming Biz News Investment Conference, or BNC3. If you can't be there, you'll get to eavesdrop on that conversation tonight. Then our London correspondent, uh, Linda Fintilberg, is in conversation with entrepreneur Regine LaRue, who's come up with a fantastic initiative to repurpose plastic bags and help with the unemployment problem while she's at it in Hout Bay. You'll hear my voice in conversation with our partners across the border in Namibia as I give a snapshot of what was on our radar from the week. And then, as always, our partner, the Financial Times, has all the international business news you need to know. To Nadia Swart now in the Mother City with your news headlines. Rightrock believes that with every change in life comes opportunity and the markets aren't any different. The daily movement in the markets means change for us all, sometimes small, sometimes big. This daily market report is made just for you by BrightRock, the first ever needs-matched life insurance that changes as your life changes. President Sol Ramaphosa says reducing red tape will benefit businesses and unlock investment. He's defending his decision to appoint a red tape team led by former Exaro CEO Sipo Nkosi. During his State of the Nation address, Ramaphosa said this team would be used to make it easier for businesses to do business. Meanwhile, Ramaphosa also told MPs that he refuses to respond to some of the criticism levelled against him during this week's SONA debate. He says the focus should be on constructive criticism from MPs, not on insults about his attire. The National Prosecuting Authority says it will resist further delays in the long-awaited corruption trial of Jacob Zuma and French arms company Thales, and stressed that despite any appeals, the matter must proceed. The NPA expressed this a day after Judge Piet Kuhn in the KwaZulu-Natal High Court in Pietermaritzburg dismissed all six applications Zuma launched to challenge the legitimacy of his corruption prosecution and ordered that the case against him and Thales should proceed on the 11th of April 2022. In a 61-page ruling, Kuhn reiterated what the NPA previously argued, that Zuma did not have the legal right to appeal the dismissal of his special plea challenge to State Advocate Billy Downer's title to prosecute him now. After citing multiple court rulings, Kuhn said it was clear that such an appeal could happen only if and when Zuma was convicted of the arms deal corruption he is accused of. The High Court in Makanda has dismissed Shell and Mineral Resources and Energy Minister Gwede Mantashe's application for leave to appeal a ruling that temporarily halted a seismic survey off the wild coast. The interim interdict remains in place and Judge Gerald Bloom made the ruling on Thursday in which he dismissed the application with costs. Shell and the minister had applied for leave to appeal Bloom's December ruling, which blocked the seismic survey pending a hearing set down for the 30th of May that will challenge the oil company's environmental authorization. 
Given the arguments brought before him, Bloom said that he is of the view that an appeal would have no reasonable prospects for success. Retail tycoon and one of South Africa's most revered businessmen, Christo Visa, has won back billionaire status in dollar terms. The increase in Visa's wealth has been driven largely by his investment in the food retail business he helped start, ShopRite, which has become the country's standout retail performer. Visa's 10.67% stake in ShopRite, the second largest shareholding behind the public investment corporation, is valued at 14 billion rand, which is around $910 million. When you include his other investment vehicles and family interests, it drives his effective economic stake closer to 12%, making him a billionaire in dollar terms, a feat that has evaded him since Steinhoff collapsed in the latter end of 2017. Prior to the Steinhoff collapse, Visa had amassed a wealth of $5.8 billion, which made him one of the richest men on earth. He lost around $4 billion owing to fraud and misappropriation of funds, at the multinational retailer. It's also worth noting that after the Steinhoff saga, Visa reduced his economic interests in ShopRite from around 18% to 12% to free up liquidity. Visa's interests in ShopRite have become the crown jewel of his empire. In 2014, he sold Pepco, which was unlisted at the time, to Steinhoff in a share-based transaction worth around 63 billion rand in exchange for 20% of Steinhoff. The Steinhoff paper became monopoly money as the shares fell by over 90% when they uncovered accounting irregularities and creditors forced the sale of his stake following the collapse. Visa sued Steinhoff for around 60 billion rand and the embroiled retailer finally settled with shareholders over four years later. Steinhoff's 25 billion rand global settlement plan has been approved by Steinhoff claimants and regulators. Visa will receive a fraction in a part share, part cash settlement. Visa's other listed interests include investment holding companies Breit and Invicta. Breit is a private equity firm that was listed before the global financial crisis and went on to become the darling of the JSC in subsequent years. It is another of Visa's business interests to come under significant pressure. In true private equity fashion, management was aggressive and its 2015 acquisition of UK retailer New Look derailed the business. Flooded with debt and a non-performing asset, and lost over 100 billion rand in shareholder value. It is difficult to calculate Visa's economic interest in Breit, even given his approximate direct 27% shareholding in the business, worth around 1.5 billion rand. His private investment arm, Titan, has recently underwritten part of a 3 billion rand convertible bond that can be converted to equity in time, and this increases shareholding. Visa's industrial arm, Invicta, faced a similar fate. Its shares fell by more than 95% since its peak, with a culmination of headwinds hitting the business at once. It has since recovered somewhat, and his interests in the business are valued at over 1 billion rand. Just to clarify, Visa could have achieved this landmark $1 billion milestone much earlier in the ShopRite rally, but a lack of information on his private investments makes it tough to accurately value. These values have been calculated from his shareholding in the aforementioned companies. His economic interests in the business may vary slightly, depending on the other financial instruments, such as bonds, that his private investment arm Titan holds. There's little doubt Christo Visa is one of the best South African business people. To build a $5.8 billion empire, you have to take some serious risks. Sometimes, as we've seen in the case of Steinhoff, Breit, and Invicta, things don't go as planned, such as life and in business. It's tough and ever-changing, leaving the mediocre behind. Regardless of Visa's loss of wealth, his legacy will live on, 
an unbelievable business person who has created tens of thousands of jobs and livelihoods for ordinary South Africans. Rory Stain, I'm looking forward to having a fireside chat with you in the Berg at what we call BNC3. It's our third business conference and it's a, it's a different format. Uh, we're going to be talking about you. The topic of the talk is uh, your time as Madiba's bodyguard. And I'm looking even more forward to it than you are because um, it's just got such a wonderful reputation, great location. And I'm very happy to tell have my story. Have you been story. there before? I have. Yeah. I've, you know, pr- uh, we stayed there for about three nights years ago, played a bit of golf there. It's just a great setting, isn't it? I mean, anywhere in the Berg's a great setting, right? Drakensberg Sports Resort Golf Course has now been upgraded to the 26th best in South Africa. And given how many golf wow. courses we've got here, yeah, that's, that's a very high rating. Absolutely. I mean, even top 100 is going to be a proper track. Yeah. Yeah. So, so what are you going to be telling us? Well, uh, essentially, you know, people love to hear the stories about uh, the privilege that I had to serve Madiba for the five years that he was our president. You know, how that came about, meeting him for the first time, especially given the fact that not only was I a white cop, but I also came from a, a security branch background. So Nelson Mandela and Rory Stain should really have been mortal enemies. And yet he accepted me, and not only did he accept me, he rebuffed an attempt, I guess you would call it, because when, this, when the intelligence services discovered that this young team leader who is assigned to the president you know, has the background that I had, they went to him and said, listen, you know, you need to get rid of this guy. And that would have been the simplest thing for him to say, yeah, okay. There would have been a hundred other guys in the, in the queue equally as qualified as I was, Alec. And he said, no. He said, you leave that boy there. He's, um, he's done a good job and he's proved himself. And he later said to me that in any case, we are not looking for people who are carrying out instructions in the old days, in the old system and everything that this, the security police were known for. He said, we want the people that were giving those instructions. It was a, a, a real light bulb moment for me, Alec, because what it said was that I was employed to do a job, and that job demanded loyalty to my president, to the head of state. But long before I was called on to be loyal to him, he was loyal to me. He didn't have to do that. As I said, he could have just said, yeah, okay. It's, it's incredible. I was actually thinking about our conversation this morning and remembering yes. I, I met him twice. And wow. in both times, he said, it's an honor and a privilege to meet you. I'm sure he did that with everybody. That's and who he shook he was. his hand, this yeah. tall man yes. uh, with, with uh, uh, just such a presence. And I will remember sure. that uh, until my dying day. Okay, so lots of people saying, yeah, we've, uh, we've made him into something bigger than he was. Well, I'm biased. But I think that even compared to a Gandhi or a Churchill, to me, he is the human being of the 21st century. That's extraordinary because this is a yeah. guy that you spent five years very, very close to. Yes. So you would have seen his flaws. You would have yeah. seen uh, the, the ups and downs. And you still say that? Absolutely. And you know, Alec, that because I, I, I'm asked that question quite often. And um, what I can say is that I watched him because of this position I was in, I watched him from an up-close and personal perspective change the country. But he also changed me very profoundly. Because when I came into that job, if you, if you pause the movie at 94 and roll it back to 1990, when I was actually actively serving in 
the church's section of the security branch at John Forster Square, when FW made that historic announcement, um, you know, there was probably a TV on in the tea room or something like that, and we weren't really paying attention. I mean, who listens to politicians, right, when you're a cop? And then ne the next thing he says, he is going to release Mr. Mandela unconditionally and unban all the banned political organizations. I mean, we know the import of that, of that statement. But when he signed it into law, we as the security branch had no more work because the illegal people and illegal organizations that we were focused on were now legal. So when this, nine days later now, on the 11th of February, uh, President Mandela is released from Victor Fester. He goes to the Grand Parade in Cape Town to make his first speech as a free man, and the world's media are there hanging off every word because we didn't even know what he looked like, remember? That's right. It was illegal to publish a photograph of him or anything that he said. So what is he going to say? He goes to the Grand Parade, he says a, a, you know, a lot of things, but one of the, the tenets of what he said was, quoting from the Freedom Charter, where he said, South Africa is for all her people, both black and white. And this cynical cop sitting in his office in John Forster is going, whatever. Of course you're going to say that. That's the party line. You know, we were instructed and trained in what the ideology of the, of the ANC was because that's warfare 101 is know your enemy's strategy or his philosophy. And I just poo-pooed all that. So that's 1990. So you thought that was PR? I just thought that was PR. Of course you're going to say that. It's the party line. Four years later, I get to meet him and not just meet him, I get to work with him and, and, and to serve in this particular capacity and all of a sudden I saw that none of that stuff that he was saying, like we need to build one South Africa, we need to unite her people, the, the country is for all of us. I very quickly, and I mean in a matter of months, realized that he's absolutely sincere about that because you expect that kind of thing to be a facade or at least it's propaganda and it's a, it's, it's a party line that he's you know trotting out. But he didn't, he lived it. And I bought into that philosophy of his hook, line, and sinker. You know, I'm, I'm not ashamed to say it now that I didn't believe a word he said in 1990. But coming to serve him in 94, it took a matter of two or three months for me to say, okay, at the very least, I'm prepared to give this man a chance. You can't fake because authenticity. You can't fake that. You can't put facade and, and Mandela in the same sentence. People often ask me what he was like. And the greatest compliment I think that I can pay and the easiest way to describe him is to say to you that how you perceive him, you've met him twice, if you've never met Mandela, how you perceive him off a 42-inch TV screen, that's exactly how he is. Because he had this very rare uh, quality of treating every person that he interacted with the same, whether he was speaking to another head of state or the gardener or his family or to us as his bodyguard, he treated everybody the same. And that is so rare not even mentioning how rare it is amongst politicians, but rare of any leader to be so utterly consistent in treating people exactly the same. Very rare of any human being. Any human being, you're right. Mm. Yeah. Too many chameleons around who Too change many. for yeah. the circumstances. And they just, you know, they hunt with their hair and, uh, hairs and run with their hounds. But he's clearly influenced your life, given the way that your eyes Very opened. profoundly. Yeah. You still live in South Africa? Yes, I live in South Africa and I'm going nowhere. And I took a decision sometime during those five years that 
the things that I learned from him, and, and there were many, and we can, you know, we can talk about those when I get down to the Berg. But I've tried to, so I have three boys, and I've tried to teach that kind of, um, those values that I learned from him to, you know, to, to my sons. And I try and put them into practice every day. I, I, I probably fail every day, but there's so much that we can learn from him, you know. Just the, just the, the statement he made, um, and I paraphrase it, where he said, it's so much better to sit down with your enemy and talk to him than to fight. I mean, that is a life lesson and as a value and as a principle. You know, it can save this, this world so much heartache, you know, so many human lives, so much death, so much conflict, just by listening to a simple, simple yet profound um, statement like that. At BNC2, so we have two conferences a year. That was at the spring conference in, in September. September. Yeah. Rob Hersov had a very strong speech. Uh, and yes. one of the tenets that he brought out, he said, if Madiba were alive today, he would vote DA. DA. Yeah. Do you think that he would? Well, I don't know, I don't know if he would... He was such a party man that I think probably not. But the principles, what Hussov was saying, the principles that he would have voted for were not visible in his own party by then. So I think Hussov was on the money. If you look into the future and the way that South Africa is going today, and we know this isn't what Nelson Mandela would have wanted, no. is it possible for us to recapture that Madiba magic? Alec, I'm an optimist, and I will I will believe that till the day that I go to my grave. Because and the the only reason for that is that every single day we still see South Africans of of every hue and colour doing wonderful acts of kindness for and to one another. And I have to say that at some point that has got to you know it's like that cliche about the you know it only takes one flame flickering somewhere to to push away darkness and i think that there is more than enough of that kind of goodwill and i don't say this looking through rose-colored spectacles you know i just see it every single day and i think that once we get a grip on the kind of chaos and mayhem that we've had to endure for the last 10 or 11 years evidenced by what happened in our you know in KZN and Gauteng in July last year once we get a grip on that I think that we are going to be the country that everybody wants to invest in and I'm not an and I'm not an economist however we we need a change at the top uh, I'm not saying the, uh, the president I have a lot of respect for our for our president but those you know those immediately below him I I, I don't think are, are, are leaders that are going to take us there Bobby Godsell, uh, in an interview that we had a little while ago, said that South Africa is blessed by its people but cursed by its leaders. Well, I'm paraphrasing him. Yeah. And if our leaders could just perhaps go back and, uh, and imagine they spent the five years that you did with yes. Madiba. But, I mean, so did, so did um, Cyril. You know, President Ramaphosa, at the time that I served Madiba, was the general secretary of the ANC, so he didn't have a you know a, a ministerial portfolio. He wasn't a, a a VIP in the terms of what I as a as a cop in the VIP protection unit understood a VIP to be. So he went through that 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 road, and, and let us never forget that it was he and Ruth Mayer that actually got us to where we are now as a democratic society. And I just I don't know. Um, whether it's this whole thing of you know fighting with one hand tied behind his back because he's got 
he's got such problems with, from, from within. But I believe, if you look at these, even my fellow South African speeches, you know, from the first one that he made up until this, the, this very last one, I have respect for his abilities. So you would have seen a lot of Cyril as well yes. during those five years. Do you think he's for real? In other words, when he stands up and he says things that he intends doing, is he saying it again in an authentic manner or is he just towing a, a PR spin? I think that I think there's a bit of both. I like to believe that he is an, an, an authentic leader and a, and a good president. I think that he has to um, pacify or, or play towards certain factions, you know, in order to to keep his power base. And I'm not a politician, so I don't know even whether that statement is is accurate. I'm merely going on the evidence of my eyes. So what I see is a man who has the wherewithal, is probably the right guy for the for the moment, but just severely hamstrung by those below him and also all of this 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 party infighting. I want to tell you one really cool story though, and this is an absolutely true story, Alec. You remember that there was a, a parliamentary determined deadline by which time the constitution had to have been ratified. And as we know, Cyril and Roof were the two that burned the midnight oil to, to kind of get this document over the line. And uh, so let's say that it was the deadline expired on a Sunday night and on Monday morning in Parliament, Parliament had to ratify the, the South African constitution, not the interim one, the actual one, because this is about 96 I'm talking about. So now Madiba calls the whole shooting match to Mahlamandlovo, which is the official residence in Pretoria, his official residence, where he didn't stay, but every other president does. And there's this long dining room table, beautiful old wooden table, and he puts the ANC delegation down the one side, the Nats down the other side, and he says, no, right, now we're not leaving here until we've knocked this thing out because the deadline expires at midnight. So it's a Sunday afternoon. It's very boring for us because we've driven up the highway from Houghton where he lived, and this negotiation is going on, and you know we're just waiting for it all to end so we can take him back and go home to our families. So I'm sitting outside this dining room, inside the official residence, when the doors of the dining room fly open, and out comes Cyril. So I get up, and I didn't know him by any other term as chief, because that's what my ANC colleagues called him, because he was the, the general secretary of the ANC. As I said, he didn't have a formal government position. So I got up, and I said, Chief, can I help you? you know, is there something you need? He said, yes. Where's the nearest TV? I said, well, it's down the hall. Why do you need it nearest TV? He says, I just want to know who's leading the Grand Prix. <laughs> <laughs> and that's a true story. <laughs> it's me and Gary Jordan again. We're doing our quick sort of update. It's not going to be quick because I know, Gary, you've got a whole lot of stuff in your cellar. Hi, thanks for joining me on Carrie's Corner. Thanks, Gary. Busy day. Uh, lots of grapes coming in at the moment. You'll see some activity uh, behind me still. I'm set up in the cellar as I'm running from, uh, from room to room as we busy taking in grapes for our bubbly, some lovely Chardonnay. And, uh, and lots of fermentations happening from, uh, from what's happened over the last week. So, you've, you've done, have you started solving your blank? Because that's what I was sort of interested in. I thought that last week when we chatted, everybody was talking about solving your blank. 
And you said you thought you might start harvesting your Sauvignon Blanc this week. Have you done that? You disappeared for five minutes when in the beginning of the interview, so you might have told me that already. No, so um, it was a, you know, the build-up to the harvest was so cool and different, um, and we ended up taking in our very first two blocks of Chardonnay, but Sauvignon Blanc it is. Uh, it's gone back to sort of a normal harvest, some wonderful flavors. Uh, Sauvignon Blanc rolling in at the moment. We stopped today just to take in a little bit of uh, Chardonnay for bubbly because that needs to come in at a slightly lower sugar. Yes. Um, but Sauvignon Blanc it is all week uh, for the rest of the week and weekend. Wow. So how many tons of Sauvignon Blanc are we going to harvest off Jordan this year? Do we know? Do you have an idea? Yeah, we, we, we roughly, we do bunch counts and we weigh bunches and we can kind of get a very good estimate as to what's going to come in. It's probably around 130 tons of, uh, of Sauvignon Blanc um, in total, sp spread amongst a few different blocks, more That's south a lot. and That's east a lot of south. wine. And, and Gary, does that go into... Yeah, it's a bit more than you can drink on a weekend. It's a bit more than we can do at dinner. Does that go into the chameleon <laughs> as well? You've got a chameleon Sauvignon, haven't you? We, we do, yes. So it'll go into our main uh, Sauvignon Blanc, the cold fact. And okay. it will also go into the, the chameleon. And it's looking nice. I know when I spoke to you earlier, you were a little bit worried that it was probably maybe getting a little bit sun-kissed. The, the grapes, the bunch of grapes that you sent me looked absolutely beautiful. I wanted to eat them. You, should, you sent me a photograph of them. But they were looking teensy bit sun-kissed, which I love. Um, beautiful for aromatics and, and, and mouthfeel for Sauvignon Blanc. Okay? Nice ripe grapes. Yeah, look, one doesn't want too much sun on Sauvignon Blanc because you, in many ways, uh, it's a very delicate grape variety and it, uh, it doesn't like to grow just everywhere. Um, to do well, it's really got to be high up, cool. Um, you don't want too much sun exposure because, uh, you know, unlike some grape varieties, you'll actually burn off those really delicate sort of tropical Sauvignon Blanc flavors off quite yeah. easily. Well, just um, for the so just for the viewers and the listeners. We were sending some photographs earlier. Yeah. I was going to say for the viewers and the listeners, I'm going to see if I can put into the newsletter maybe next week that beautiful photograph that you sent me this morning, looking out from the top of the hill down over the Sauvignon Blanc vineyards, and there was a sort of a mist cloud coming in over the over the vines, and it just looked absolutely gorgeous. I thought, what a perfect Sauvignon Blanc harvest morning. Yeah, it was ideal for that time in the morning, 6, 6.30 in the morning. Mm. But uh, a little bit of a wake-up call because we normally get those mists coming in around the uh, sort of end of March, and that kind of heralds a bit of botrytis with it. Yeah. Uh, as you know, we, we like uh, a bit of botrytis, particularly if it's clean. Mm. And on something like Sauvignon Blanc can make it quite interesting. Oh, I love but, it. But, uh, yeah, it looks like ev everything is now dried off a bit. Okay. And I'm sitting, looking at you, Gary, you're in your cellar at Jordan, and I can see people with great big bins of grapes and things that they're obviously putting through to be pressed a little bit there behind you. But I can see an amphora in the background there. Is that a, where did you get that from? What is that that I'm looking at behind you? It, it is, yeah, it's, it a, it's, a, it's, it's clay amphora. We've got a whole series of them. Um, this is just one of them here. We had to move out of the way today, but it's got some... Uh, some lovely syrah in it. Mm. Uh, 
in the in the background what we're looking at and you can imagine uh, for those who can't see it uh, we've got uh, you know tanks hanging from the ceiling uh, we've got movable presses on the same level that I'm uh, that I'm chatting to you at and uh, we can literally push the press to the pumice rather than uh, have to pump uh, grapes all over the place so much more gentle action the cellar looks um, today is all about, uh, about white grapes yes okay you know, I, I'm absolutely loving the flavors yeah. that are coming out of those amphora, and I think more and more people, if they if they can afford to, because they are quite expensive, aren't they? Tell tell the listeners what an amphora they like are. that costs. What does it cost? Uh, an amphora costs about half the cost of a BMW. <laughs> um, you know. <laughs> oh God. And uh, but it's not like a barrel uh, where. You know, a barrel that you would uh, you would use perhaps sort of five times and then uh, mm. cut it in half and use it for pot plants. Yeah. Uh, and for <laughs> it really has a life, and because it's all clay and it's natural. Yeah, and, I know. And Gary, tell me Not something. Not good for the bottom line. No, no, those those pots. Every time I see any of my friends using one of those sawn-off wine barrels, my heart sort of clinches. You know, and I think, oh, but these amphoras. <laughs> um, I would be terrified of them breaking because I've had clay pots and things in my life before and all they need is one tiny little bump and that's them. I mean, how do you protect these things in the cellar? Yeah, well, this would be an absolute disaster, not only for the really expensive clay amphora that's mm. come out from Tuscany, uh, you know, real precision made and each one signed by the potter that's made it oh. and fired it um, but not only that but you lose the wine and a whole year's worth of work so you don't you don't want to break them I promise you you don't want to break them so have you had to sort of rearrange your cellar to house these amphora because I would imagine that once they're in place you don't want to move them anywhere else do you it's not like barrels that you can roll around the cellar no, but you can if you've got the right system and we've got a sort of little trolley system that you can move them around um, you can do that, uh, but you don't want to just put them on chocks and then have to roll them uh, on their sides. That's not going to work. Yeah. They crack quite easily. And that's what I think. I mean, I, as I said, I've had clay pots in my garden before, and one little knock in the right place or the wrong place with the handle of the rake or something, and that pot just cracks in half. So I would be terrified as a wine farmer having exactly. spent, that's... having bought a fleet of BMWs and put them <laughs> in my cellar, and now they can crack. Anyway, so that's that. Talk to me about the yeah. rest of the week. We doing are we doing Sauvignon Blanc the whole week at Jordan? Yes. So other other than the bubbly for our uh, Blanc de Blanc, which means it's coming out of Chardonnay only, we're doing a Blanc de Blanc Chardonnay today. Um, and that'll go into, uh, um, you know, to be used for, for sparkling wine. Yes. Um, but we're using a series of, of different yeasts. Uh, now, it's quite interesting because what we use for bubbly is this uh, French EC 1818, and there's various forms of it, but a Bayanis-type yeast, uh, specially made for, uh, uh, for bubbly. And then for Sauvignon Blanc, uh, in this case here in, in my hand, I've got some of this yeast coming from uh, South Africa, made at Anki Yeast specially selected for South African conditions and really great to bring out those intense tropical fruit flavors on Sauvignon Blanc. 
Okay, good. So, so you, um, so yeah, you. This is VIN thirteen. Okay, and you actually, you don't for the Sauvignon Blancs, you're not, um, you're not going for natural fermentation. So you, you add the yeast, and you've selected those yeasts specifically to match the clone of vine that you've got in your vineyard. That's right. Yeah, for the outlier Sauvignon Blanc, which we barrel ferment, yeah. uh, that would be natural fermentation. Mm. But for a a standard sort of Sauvignon Blanc that you and I would be yeah. drinking gallons of, that would be uh, fermented. And you want you want to know that you're going to get exactly the right kind of flavors. Um, you want to control that you're not going to get vinegar and all sorts of other yes. possible problems coming from And aside from, from that, that we want some consistency because everybody knows that Jordan Sauvignon Blanc tastes like this. And every year it tastes like this, and that's why we buy it, because we yeah. like it. And so, as you say, you can control the quality. I mean, it's a good quality control thing. And you've obviously done loads and loads of of, um, of research and what have you to make sure that you've put exactly the correct yeah. yeast with the right grape. Mm. Okay, well, that's perfect. And that's um, just one of a numerous yeasts that we'd use. Yes, uh, is yeast a massive part of your pricing? Is yeast expensive? Not really. Isn't it? Uh, barrels are expensive and all the kind of hardware that you see in the background are expensive. And yes. And otherwise we catch up next week for another quick update on the Jordan harvest and what is going on in the Jordan vineyards and the Jordan winery. Thank you so, so much as ever. Have That'll you got something in your glass? What have you swirling around in your glass? I, I do. I've got some, some newly fermenting Sauvignon Blanc, so you can actually see how, how cloudy it is. It's yes. already, you know, it starts off at somewhere around 230 grams of sugar, and it's now down to about 190. So you can't really drink it, but you no. can start getting those wonderful flavors oh, of Sauvignon Blanc. As we... I can smell it. Even though I'm just looking at you on a screen, I can smell that Sauvignon Blanc as it is like that. It's such a good, and it looks like cloudy apple juice from from pick and pay or something, but it is delicious. I love it like that. Just another crazy week in South Africa as we wait for part, uh, the next installment, the next gripping installment of the Zondo Commission report coming out this week. Uh, you guys have managed to put together a very, very good explainer on the Denel issue. Tell us a little bit more about that. Well, Gary, I tried my best. It's a, it's a complicated report, but I, I try to break it down as best I could. And it's, it's looking at uh, the state arms manufacturer, Denel. I mean, it's in a really bad position. It, it, it's electricity got disconnected earlier um, uh, last week. 2.4 million rand in arrears. I mean, it had to pay 300,000 rand. And this is a national key point. I just have to remind you, the city of Tswane <laughs> saying, no, 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 uh, we're not going to stand for that anymore. So they had, to, they had to pay 300K and then they could be reconnected. But this is after uh, the company wasn't able to pay at least 636 million rand in salaries is still owed to staff and 900 million rand is owed to suppliers. Um, the state capture inquiry saying they really are not sure whether the main shareholder or the only shareholder, the South African government is going to be able to breathe life back into this crippled entity. The state capture inquiry report, go look at that explainer if you can. I'm not going to get into it now, but basically from a board level, um, it was just a, a string of 
uh, of very bad decisions enforced from the Saxon world Shabin by the Guptas to Lynn Brown, uh, the public enterprises minister and her predecessor, Malusi Gigaba. They are all implicated in very horrible ways. And everybody in South Africa is pulling their hair out saying, when is law enforcement going to act? Well, we'll watch that one. But a, a turnaround story is what Danelle needs. And another turnaround story is Arsenal Mittal. Uh, Alec Hogg, founder of Biz News, has been pretty negative about that company for a number of years now. Uh, but he sat down with Quibus Fistad, who's the CEO. Um, they've had an, an amazing turnaround story. And uh, tell us a little bit more about that, because it sounds pretty genuine. So this is a company that from 2010, as a group, the Arsenal Mittal group, had lost $20 billion ran 12 billion of that in, in in cash losses but since he took over in i think it was about 2018 they've he's really looked to sort of trim um AMSA down a lot and they've upped their production recently to from i think 2.2 million tons to 3 million tons but this is off a peak of 7 million tons of of uh, of steel in recent years so they're slowly getting back on their feet but they have had probably the best year, uh, reported year in, in the last 15 years, uh, 8 billion rand in operating profit. This off a loss of 963 million rand the year before. So, uh, yeah, Alec Hogg having a fascinating 30-minute sit-down with, with Kurbis Fester to find out how they've managed to turn things around. And he obviously presides over a company that is the best-performing share on the JSC over the last year at least. And then just lastly, um, the global law firm Baker McKenzie is in the spotlight for being both referee and player and its work for, for Bain. This Bain story won't go away, and it just seems to be sucking more and more big international names into it. Uh, is it a case of that the big guys just do what they want, and, and now suddenly there's, there's a spotlight and, and the cockroaches are scuttling? You know, this, this is, uh, to her credit, the 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 work of advocate Erin uh, Richards here. As somebody within the legal fraternity, she said, hold on, from a cursory reading of the the uh, State Capture Inquiry report and the Nugent Commission report, which looked at the South African Revenue Service, there is a law firm, and there are other law firms as well, but she's focused her energy here on uh, Baker McKenzie, which is a global law firm that Bain and Co. used both as uh, a company to give legal advice and help them prep for their submissions for the Nugent Commission, but then also announced that this is the company, this legal firm is going to conduct a transparent and independent investigation into Bain and Co.'s actions at the South African Revenue Service. Now, how can you be giving somebody legal advice on one hand, but then also investigating them on the other? So, uh, and myself, uh, Advocate Aaron Richards and Bain Whistleblower, uh, Ethel Williams had a, had a great 30 minute sit down where we sort of spitballed this, this notion of um, can you hide behind legal privilege? Legal privilege can only be waived by a client. And Ethel Williams, who was supposed to oversee the uh, independent and transparent investigation, he was never, ever given the report by Baker McKenzie. There are 10 partners in the local branch of Baker McKenzie. Uh, Business is going to be seeing if we can get some sort of a response out of them because the hands, it appears, are very dirty. Thank you, Michael. Another fascinating story I, I quickly caught up on this morning was the massive value destruction being wreaked at the moment by, um, by NUSPAS and the, and the process 
directors. Go go check that out. That's on biznews.com. I'm Lena van Tolberg for Biznews. There's an initiative in Hout Bay in the Western Cape to crochet plastic bags into shopping and beach bags, and it's putting bread on the table of households in the area. Local resident Regine Leroux is behind the Rebag Reuse initiative, and we have her here in the BizNews virtual studio. Regine, where did this idea come from? Afternoon, Linda, and thank you for the opportunity. It was actually born from the pandemic and during lockdown when all of us had to go back and find our old hobbies and mine being knitting and crocheting. But there's only so many blankets that you can actually crochet from wool and I get bored quite easily. <laughs> so I was looking for new challenges and new ways to, to crochet. And one morning when I went running, when the lockdown was slightly less severe, I saw a plastic bag and something in my memory somewhere reminded me of seeing ladies, housekeepers and nannies years ago um, during their tea breaks and lunch breaks, crocheting the most beautiful mats and things out of plastic shopping bags. So I thought, let me see if I can't also get that right. And the first few that I tested and played with were disastrous, I won't lie. But again, Mm -hmm. being up for a challenge, I found a way of cutting the bags into strips and lo and behold it worked. It was very, very exciting to see how the the plastic got transformed into another plastic bag. Um, I've actually started off with shopping bags and that's still one of the key ranges that we have at the moment. So how did you get the local ladies involved in crocheting? During lockdown, um, as I said, with, with this crocheting, I also thought I think there's you know, opportunities with other people creating a, a slight, small income for themselves. But as I was thinking about this, not really paying too much attention to the, I mean, there's lots of things that you think about during a lockdown. Somebody that I had met some time ago in the harbor, she saw me crocheting one day and she said, wouldn't I mind teaching some of the ladies, there's a group of ladies in, at the Half Bay Harbor, how to crochet? And I said, with the greatest of pleasure, and I met up with them. And then showed them also how to actually repurpose old t-shirts and things, but also how to repurpose empty bread bags, how to cut it and how to crochet it. And it was just wonderful to see the excitement that these ladies had with, with being able to transform plastic into different products as well. And that's where it slowly but surely started. And one of the key things when it comes to crocheting, it can be so frustrating while you're busy crocheting something and your material's finished. So what you have now got three ladies that actually help to cut the plastic. So any soft, clean plastic, they cut into the beautiful strips for us, and then we can repurpose that into different products. So what are the stories of the ladies involved and how did this change their income? These ladies just inspire me on a daily basis, and I just have so many lessons I learned from them. They're just incredible. The first one is Seta Adams. She lives in the harbor, and she hadn't been employed for three years. And her cousin actually was one of the ladies that got me involved initially. And when I asked Maureen, who was a lady, who can, who can perhaps cut this for us, she told me about Seta. Now, Seta didn't really know that she was being signed up for this. So she got these plastic bags to cut. 
And he said to me the other day, you know what, I had such a dim view when Maureen asked me to cut this for me, uh, to cut the plastic. But you know what, I thought, oh, let me just do it. And then when she got paid that first time after cutting the plastic and realizing for the first time in three years, tonight she can actually go and buy bread for the family and not be dependent on a Sasa grant. It was just this moment of realizing there's more to it. And then also just seeing this her self-confidence to grow as she got more plastic to cut, um, getting out of her shell. And she's now being full-time employed as well. So um, she's not cutting for us at the moment, but it's just wonderful to see the growth of, of Seta and how she's grown. But the other day, the other story I'd love to share with you is of Jane Hoffman. Mm -hmm. She's also a lady from the harbour. And she's mm -hmm. a grandmother of two. And she very proudly shared with me the other day that her granddaughter has just finished matric, grade 12. And she is so happy that she's now going to go, Jane's going to go and buy some data for her, her granddaughter so that she can go and apply to nursing colleges. And often we think it's just an empty piece of plastic bread bag that you throw away, it's a piece of rubbish. But repurposing it into another product, another bag, it's helping these ladies to be able to buy essentials, to be able to put bread on the table, and it's not just a piece of waste. So ultimately, we're also keeping it from the landfill, from our oceans. There's just so many different aspects of this project that it's touching. Yeah, because it's plastic, it's strong, and it will last. It's so durable. Somebody told me the other day, they didn't actually realize how durable it is. And I must have admired that I made for myself. I intended to use it as a shopping bag. I actually use it for everything. <laughs> and it's mm. still going strong. Another lady the other day, she commutes for, between provinces from work. And she said to me that it's still going strong. And I actually saw it and I couldn't believe it. She uses it every single day. And it's still perfectly, perfectly going very strongly. So <laughs> very happy to have seen that. How is the Hout Bay community supporting you? The community are incredible. The households are collecting all of their soft plastic for us. And we have a centralized point at the Fiddlesticks Haberdashery, who's very, very kindly collecting the bags for us. We've got a number of restaurants who have toasted sandwiches and they keep all of their the empty bread bags for us. Also six-pack wrappers, some of the restaurants keep that for us. And it's just been incredible. The hairdresser keeps their aprons for us. And um, even in Woodstock, the neighborhood old age home, they have a feeding scheme and they keep all of their bread bags for us. So they're also actually a beneficiary of sales of our bags. So whenever we sell a bag, a percentage goes to a lady that crochets it, who cuts it and to a local charity. And Noah is one of the recipients of the funds that come through from the sales. And do South Africans want to buy these bags? They are incredibly supportive. I think what's important just to keep in mind, it does take about eight hours. It's a full day's work to make one bag, and that doesn't include cutting it. And there's about 30 empty bread bags that goes into one bag. So there's actually quite a lot of work that goes into it. Um, but we have also seen that the international guests, tourists, love these bags. It's great gifts. I'm very thrilled that some of these bags have made their way to Las Vegas and Hamburg and Germany, to Switzerland. So it's slowly but surely 
really taking off. And we're only eight months into this project. So I'm very, very grateful for all the support that we're seeing with this initiative. How many ladies are involved in this project at the moment? There's currently 11. Three ladies are cutting for us, and then there's eight, there are eight ladies who crochet. But they're all actually good in their own spare time as well for an additional income. So it's not they're not fully employed. They're not full-time employed at all. It is just extra pocket money for them to be able to, to supplement their, their current incomes. Where do you want to grow this to? Are you planning to add more ladies or more products? Definitely. I think there's so many opportunities. There's so much talent that we have, and specifically in Africa. So the immediate next step, we are looking at Pretoria. I actually have a crochet and a cutter in Pretoria. And then definitely to see how can we expand this into the rest of Africa. Um, We have the most amazing continent. We have the most amazing talent. And it's definitely one of those big, hairy, audacious goals of expanding it. But first, want to make sure that I get it right, that we get the pilot right here in Heart Bay. What's nice about the project is not only that it's creating jobs, but it's also taking plastic that would have landed in landfills or in the sea out of the system. Definitely. It's insane if you just think of how much plastic there is generated. It's just absolutely crazy. And you you really do start asking, do you really need so much plastic? It's crazy. So I'm really glad that we could find some small way of just repurposing it. You are also on Backer Buddy. How is Backer Buddy supporting this initiative? So it's part of raising funds for this initiative. It really is key from a transparency point of view, but also to find ways to supplement the funds for this project so that we can get more crocheters involved, get more cutters involved. The next thing is actually to get people involved to help with sorting the plastic to see it as a, not something that's, that needs to be thrown away, but that can actually be created into something beautiful. So to create more funds for that, the Back and Buddy project, is I've set myself another big area there to goal, which is a slightly shorter term for this year, is to run 100 10Ks. So I'm currently on number 13. So if anybody is willing yeah. to sponsor a, a 10K at a, at a time, it is the, there's a back and buddy link that I'll happily share um, to have a look at that. Well, thank you, Regine Deru from Hout Bay for sharing this project with us. And um, thank you for joining us. Thank you for the opportunity, Linda. Appreciate it. Today is Thursday, February 17th. And this is your FT News Briefing. A ruling by Europe's top court paved the way for Brussels to withhold funds from member states who violate the EU rule of law. Plus, one of the biggest private equity groups bought a company with a popular home finance model called rent to buy We'll look at how it works and whether it works for aspiring homeowners. One thing that people said was, you know, this was really cool. I got to pick out any house as if I was going to buy it. But some people really struggle to navigate this path to home ownership. But first, we'll tell you about the markets. I'm Mark Filipino, and here's the news you need. U.S. stocks limped through the day yesterday, but then edged into the black after the Federal Reserve released the minutes from its January meeting. The minutes confirm that the U.S. central bank is set to raise interest rates next month and that it's open to more tightening if inflation doesn't calm down. Here's our U.S. economics editor, Colby Smith. 
neither of these two points, you know, really present anything demonstrably new uh, in terms of what we already learned from the January meeting. But it is confirmation that they are seeking to kind of maintain as much flexibility as possible here. Colby, what was the reaction in the treasury market? Treasuries have been, you know, super volatile lately. And it looks like short-term treasuries actually rallied a little bit after the minutes came out. Investors in that space have been, you know, highly sensitive to any signaling from the Fed about the policy path forward. And I think it more broadly speaks to the fact that no one has too clear of an idea uh, of exactly what the Fed is going to do. There's still open debate about whether they're going to move more aggressively at the March meeting um, and raise interest rates by, let's say, 50 basis points. That's double what they typically do, which is a, a quarter of a percentage point move. There's uncertainty about what happens after that. So at this point, there's a lot of scope for markets to move quite dramatically on any incremental details that we do get from the Fed. Colby Smith is the FT's U.S. economics editor. Europe's top court cleared the way yesterday for the bloc to withhold funding from member states that violate the rule of law. The European Court of Justice essentially rejected a legal challenge by Poland and Hungary. And as the FT's Sam Fleming says, it upheld a law that aims to give some teeth to the enforcement of rule of law values. Which uh, EU member states have signed up to, but which have been under threat in uh, numerous jurisdictions, not just Poland and Hungary, in recent years. Sam Fleming is the FT's Brussels bureau chief. So it would be a, a major step for this actually finally to happen. I think having said that, I think it will happen. I think the budgetary consequences of that for an individual member state is not clear yet because the commission is going to need to make quite focused cases against a member state saying, here are the particular rule of law concerns. Here are the ways in which those concerns have direct bearing on the way EU money is being spent, and therefore that money can be withheld or paused. So it's not a question of just cutting off the entire flow of money on a single day. It's more complicated than that. Sam also says the European Commission is under pressure to move forward in withholding funds. We could see action from the Commission certainly um, early next month. I mean, we don't know, but um, there is certainly the potential for it to move, in particular against Hungary, where uh, I think a lot of MEPs would expect the first case to be brought. Sam Fleming is the FT's Brussels bureau chief. The private equity giant Blackstone has been building up its residential property portfolio in the U.S. Last year, it spent $6 billion to buy Home Partners. This is a company that offers a popular home finance model called Rent to Buy. The FT's Mark Vandeveld looked into the company and joined me to talk more about how it works. Hey, Mark. Hi. So, Mark, let's start off by breaking down Rent to Buy. How does it work for home seekers? Well, the idea is that this is something that might be useful for people who want to buy a house but can't right now because they can't get a mortgage, they don't have a down payment ready, they have maybe tarnished credit. What Home Partners says it will do is you can pick a house, not one that's currently available for rent, but one that's on the market to be sold right now. You can't buy it, but Home Partners will. And then they'll rent it to you for up to five years with the rents agreed in advance. And if at any time you want to buy them out of the house during that five years, you can. So, Mark, you spoke to some customers, people who were using the Home Partner system. Uh, were they happy with it? We heard a mix of things from Home Partners tenants. One thing that people said was, you know, this was really cool. I got to pick out 
any house as if I was going to buy it. And it can be difficult to find rental housing. There isn't much of it. They saw in home partners was, or one of the advantages was they were able to choose from a much wider range of houses. But there's also a significant minority of tenants for whom it doesn't work out that way. So we found 967 houses in Orlando and its surrounding counties that Home Partners has bought since 2015. And of those, 155 have since been sold to individual homeowners. Um, is that a typical rate across the company? It's, so it's complicated. Something like one-fifth of the people who rent from Home Partners will end up buying Uh, But that leaves the other 80% who don't. Some of them, according to home partners, didn't intend to buy a house in the first place. Some people did intend to buy, uh, but then just find another house that they prefer. There are also cases in which people uh, run into trouble, fail to keep up on the rent, uh, end up in disputes with home partners, and things can go wrong that way too. If four out of five home partners customers remain renters, that means home partners in Blackstone are really more corporate landlords than home financiers. Does anyone see that as a problem? Home Partners occupies an interesting position in this um, debate. And so a question that arises is, how effective is Home Partners at providing this alternative path to home ownership? And I think you could fairly say if 20% of their tenants end up uh, buying houses that they wouldn't otherwise have been able to buy, um, then for that 20% uh, of tenants, um, clearly it is a path to home ownership. Um, but at the same time, uh, if 80% of tenants either don't or can't exercise that option and don't end up homeowners, and if home partners then just rents the houses uh, that they bought for those people to other people, then it's creating a permanent stock of rental houses itself. And so um, I think the question is, just how much of a solution can home partners offer to what many people perceive as the undesirable growth of renting in the suburbs? Mark Vandeville is the FT's U.S. private capital correspondent. Before we go, Apple CEO Tim Cook's latest pay package comes to $99 million. Okay, it was a banner year. Cook does run the most valuable company in the world. But the FT has learned that a leading shareholder advisory group wants Apple investors to vote no on Cook's pay. Institutional Shareholder Services cites significant concern with the stock award that Cook received last year. A no vote would not block Cook's compensation deal, but it could force him to defend his pay package. You can read more on all of these stories at FT.com. This has been your daily FT News Briefing. Make sure you check back tomorrow for the latest business news. The third business news conference at the magnificent Champagne Sports Resort in the Drakensberg will be held from the 1st to the 4th of March. It's lining up to be the best so far. We've got a strong lineup of speakers a single delegate cost is 7750 For couples, it's 12950 Book your seat by going onto the BizNews Investment Conference button on the right-hand side of the biznews.com homepage. See you there. Well, that's it from this format of the BizNews Power Hour for the week. Starting on Friday is the new BPH Digest show bringing you an audio platter of the most downloaded interviews from the week. Bye for now. 
You've been listening to the Power Hour, brought to you by the team at Biz News.